Welcome to You Are Good. We are here today talking about Gross Point Blank with Chris Gethard. I'm Sarah Marshall, and we are continuing our trend of movies about prom, high school graduation, reunions. We're moving into summer camp pretty soon. But this is in that trend, and along with an upcoming movie we had, The Parent Trap, it is also about fallout from something that happened in 1986. And of course, we are talking about John Cusack's character, Martin Blank, graduating from high school, deciding he wants to kill somebody, and then going ahead and doing that and making a career out of it, and then having to come home to his high school graduation reunion. (laughs) This is also a movie about coming to a point in your life when you realize you need to make radical changes and embrace vulnerability in a way that is more fundamentally terrifying than being shot at by Dan Aykroyd. And I hope that if that energy is in your life right now, as I feel like it's in a lot of our lives due to history, I hope that you were able to embrace that change and that luck is on your side and that you can roll out of town after a dangerous few days with the person you love most in the car with you, listening to some great songs. You are good. Happy summer, you guys. Can you believe it's been 10 years since you left Gross Point? Where are you now? We now all have husbands and wives and children and houses and dogs and, you know, they've made themselves a part of something and they can talk about what they do and what am I going to say? I killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. How have you been? Don't kill anybody for a few days. See what it feels like. I'll give it a shot. No, no, don't give it a shot. Don't shoot anything. How come you never learned that it was wrong? That there are certain things you do not do. You do not do in a civilized society. Yeah, what civilizations are we talking about? Oh, shut up. I mean, history. Shut up! And you would be the president of this organization, or maybe just a father figure to me. Hey, if you want a father, I'll give you a spanking. Yeah, forget about it. Sir, I'm beginning to worry about your safety. Look, I have to go. Yeah, we all have to go sometimes, sir, but we can choose when. No one chooses when. Hello, 
just a couple quick notes before we begin. First, You Are Good is made possible with support from Knack Factory, which is a commercial and creative video and content production company based in Portland, Maine, but does work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done for your project, for your work, for your endeavors, get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. It's also made possible by you, patreon.com slash you are good. I don't know what the next chat's going to be about, but it will be an adventure as they always are. So yeah, those come out a couple of times a month. And uh, again, you can find that at patreon.com slash you are good. I just want to say that Chris Gethard, uh, I can't believe Chris was on the show. I'm so excited Chris was on the show. And you can find his new comedy special, Half My Life, out where you watch things on the internet. Look it up. Find it. It is great. I, we watched it as a part of uh, uh, getting ready for this. And just Chris is fantastic, phenomenal. I can't say enough great things about him and about his impact and influence on me. <laughs> when I when I came to know who Chris was, I was like, ah, this is possible <laughs> with regard to being a person who says things out in the world. I want more of that. We make accompanying playlists for each of the episodes, which you can find in the show notes. Uh, they're inspired by the movie and they're inspired by our chat about the movie. Keep an eye out for that. For some reason, my mic line in this episode is was a little weird, a little tweaked. So the sound is not the same that it is in every episode, but we did everything we can to make it sound listenable. So um, if you're listening for the first time, this is not what I always sound like <laughs> in this interview. And if you are a regular listener, just know that uh, we're addressing this. So this is not going to be what it sounds like from here on out. I think that that's it. Let's talk Gross Point Blank with Chris Gethard. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. We're all killers in America today. <laughs> I wanted to spice things up. <laughs> you nailed it. Sarah, we have a special guest today. Yes. And, I, and you're both wearing yellow. Yeah. In the special movie, you're both lighting up the room. We have... Chris gathered with us today, which I'm so excited for. Hello, Chris. Hi, it's a joy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Oh, I'm lucky to be here. When the opportunity came up for you to be on the show, we were just starting to transition from our name. This is the first show that we're recording under our name, You Are Good. We have been Why Our Dads for a long time. We're doing the same sort of vibe, but like a slightly different angle. And I was so happy that there was an opportunity to have you on the show because you're like one of the first public men who I remember seeing and being like, this guy is funny and feels things deeply. And this is a show about <laughs> feelings. Well, thank you. I'm glad that's appreciated. Um, sometimes in the comedy world, I am made fun of a little bit for that. So I'm glad to hear that it's appreciated by someone. Oh man, I saw when it, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, okay, I get this. This is a big, this is a thing that I get. I'm glad that someone's feeling as hard as I am. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of my career when I started to catch momentum was, was honestly about no longer apologizing for that. I think that that actually was a thing that gave me some new things to say. And that I think a lot of people were like, oh, whoa, this is. This guy is uh, talking quite bluntly about about all sorts of emotions, and I think I think it actually was was the thing that unlocked a lot of stuff for me. Yeah, some people are rough in response to that. Some people 
<laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, you know, I think, I think there's an image of the comedian as this, like the tough road dog truth teller who uh, thinks everything's too PC and there might be some truth to that or not when you, you know, I'm a big believer in free speech as an artist who gets on stage and talks, but I think there's a little bit of a, a, a machoism to that among some people. And I don't know that, mm-hmm. the, I don't know that that click loves that. I get up and talk about depression sometimes and, and things like that. And it's never made total sense to me. I just kind of live and live and let live, but, but yeah, it's nice to be in a place where feelings are at the uh, forefront. Mm. Excellent. Well, fantastic. We won't make fun of you for talking about depression because we're right there with you. And that's what this movie is about. How good would it be if it was a gotcha, though, and you guys recorded all my feelings on on feelings, and then and then the real show is you take this audio and bring in other people to mock We're it. actually a shock talk morning <laughs> show from Tampa. Gotcha. <laughs> well, ne- ne- next time, next time. Sarah, can you give us a synopsis of what movie did we watch? And can you just give us a synopsis to get us to get us started? Yeah, we watched what I would call John Cusack's masterpiece and or the masterpiece of John Cusack-ness <laughs> or really Cusack-ness. It has like four Cusacks in it and it stars two Cusacks which is a really good number of Cusacks. <laughs> and I am referring, of course, to Gross Point and Blank, which is about an earnest, sensitive hitman who seems depressed. Mm. And he comes back to his hometown for his high school reunion and tries to rekindle his relationship with his high school sweetheart, played by Minnie Driver, who he left on prom night traumatically. It, it's a prom movie, folks. <laughs> and at the same time, he is being, let's say heavily persuaded by a fellow hitman played by Dan Aykroyd, who is just like, they figured out where Dan Aykroyd was coming from and they rode around it is what it feels like. Um, (laughs) He's pressuring him to join a hitman guild and there's a whole lot of stuff happening there. And it's about John Cusack being a sensitive hitman. Like, it could not have happened, I don't think, in another time. It feels very weird. It's very special. I'm so excited to talk about it. And it is about high school graduation because we're in that season. And what were we going through also at this time where this was in within a year, I think a year, this was one of two 10-year reunion big movies that came out because Romeo and Michelle, I think, came out the following year. I think they opened the same weekend. No. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Gen X was dealing with with aging. It's like, it's 1997. 28 is the oldest age anyone can think of. And it's just like, well... (laughs) Chris, what's, what's your background and experience with this movie? And why is it something you feel strongly about? Well, it's my favorite movie. And I will tell you too, a little bit of insight is that I have found that not everybody and not widespread, but I I have been surprised at the number of comedians I've met who really worship this movie, which I think this movie flies a little under the radar Mm. just in general and as, as a John Cusack movie and as a comedy that I think was actually pretty influential for its times, like stylistically. So there's just a lot to love about it. I think it doesn't get too much credit as sort of a canary in the coal mine for what my a man who would later become my mentor, like Judd Apatow, and 
invoking some sensitivity into unapologetic comedy with like strong premises. I think that became a whole mini revolution. Mm -hmm. I think Gross Point Blank was like an early precursor. I think if you think about comedy, I think it was 1996 or 97 it came out, right? Mm -hmm. 97. Comedy was pretty blunt then and, and, you know, still pretty gag based. This one like had a lot of feelings in it and, but was still, it's such a funny premise to have feelings. Hitman, High School Reunion, like sounds like it's going to be one thing. It's not that. um, (laughs) I'm so happy to hear you say that you feel like it's Cusack at his best because I I do too. I think a lot of people would point towards Say Anything. Hmm. I've always wondered how much of this felt like a sort of very weird sequel to Say Anything because it's a similar character going back to high school. It's totally a sequel to Say Anything. I totally think it is. Is that on record, though? <laughs> no, but it is. It's a spiritual sequel, for sure. But it has two Cusacks, and it's about, like, Say Anything is about a guy graduating high school in America in the 80s who's like, well, I'm, like, a really earnest guy who loves kickboxing, by the way, which also appears in Gross Point. Do- can't figure out my place in the world. I forget the the wonderful monologue, but, like, in a way, becoming a hitman is one of the results of being an 80s, like, a Reagan's America kid who's, like, I don't want to sell anything or process anything or buy anything bought, sold, or processed or whatever. It's just like, well, why not kill people directly as opposed to indirectly as like a stage of moral coming of age, I feel like. Right. All of Reaganism, like cutthroat capitalism ties into being a hitman, literal cutthroat capitalism. There's just so many memorable scenes, memorable lines. Very important to mention. I think one of the great soundtracks of all time. Mm-hmm. Best use of 99 lift ballons. Oh, so good so good memorable lines Hank Azaria great performance sneaky Hank so good I I might say Dan Aykroyd's like last sort of virtuoso feeling comedy effort you know like I think he went Mm. away for a while from his early days and this was the one where he kind of came like it felt sort of like a phoenix rising up and burning out and then kind of going away again yeah I don't remember anything where I've seen him crush it as hard since so and it feels totally kind of connected to pulp fiction because we've got a bible quoting hitman and we've got hitmen sort of having smart dialogue with each other and having feelings and and it, i mean it also reminds me of true romance i was just like there's something about the 90s that we'll never get back because people just started shooting everybody in real life all the time where you would have a romantic comedy with shootouts. And all I could think of was true romance and gross point blank. And if I could think of a third thing, it would be a more impressive list. But it's still two movies, so. I think you're right. I think it, I think it does kind of like maybe playfully start to wrap up some 90s tropes while mm. indicating where 2000s comedy was going was gonna to wind up. I think that there's truth to that. And I don't know that the movie gets the credit it deserves. And I once actually met Hank Azaria. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just have to tell you how much your work meant to me. And you could just tell he was ready for me to say The Simpsons because he probably hears that mm-hmm. oh, sure. every day of his life. I just went, how much your work meant to me in Gross Point Blank. And he stopped and was like, <laughs> Gross Point Blank. And he said two things. He was like, A, he's like, I don't hear that one often, but when I 
do people are really passionate like i can tell that that movie mm. meant a lot to a small number of people mm. b it was really fun to make and i'm i'm glad that it's a cult thing because i i, I always felt like it deserved a little bit more than it got and i agree with both of those but he's very confused to hear gross point blank i can tell that doesn't happen so often. <laughs> Sarah, right along those lines, we were talking earlier about how the 90s, you said this, the 90s just popped mm -hmm. Hank Azaria into stuff. Like, if you go back and, like, watch stuff from the 90s, you'll be pleasantly surprised by how many Hank Azarias pop up. And it's really great news. It's like, where's Waldo? The 90s are like, where's Hank Azaria? He was just in Pretty Woman for four minutes when we just watched that a, a couple a couple episodes Wait, ago. I already forgot that. Where was he in Pretty Woman? He's the, he's the detective at the beginning of the movie. Oh my god, that's right. Of course he's a <laughs> There's also a few Cusack tropes that I want to shout out. Inclusion of other Cusacks. Another very strong Cusack thing. Inclusion of Joe Strummer. Mm -hmm. Another running theme with John Cusack. Including not just kickboxing, but his real... My understanding, one of the greatest kickboxers of all time and someone who was his real-life coach, Benny the Jet Urquidez. And a real Chicago influence, too. Like, it's it's not just um, mm -hmm. the Cusack family. It's obviously the Jeremy Piven alliance that they had. But also, like, his high school teachers played by Barbara Harris, who's a Second City legend. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a f few other people I know from the Chicago theater and comedy scene mm. who wound up in there. There's, there's a guy who was, like, from that early wave of legendary Chicago improv whose name I'm blanking on, but that's the guy who gave him the pen in what I, and then the, the and then the call back to the pen after the fight which yeah, thanks th for the pen thanks for the pen <laughs> oh my god that's the thing like a movie with that much emotion but then also just straight up punchlines like that i said earlier like line for line this is one of the funniest movies i've ever seen like Absolutely. beyond it being like complicated yeah. and interesting and fascinating in all these ways it's just like every line is hilarious like, so many good lines i don't want to debate semantics i just want the protein like just so many <laughs> debbie it's right, De debbie's house really snuck up on you didn't it no yeah. you drove us here like so many funny lines, so many funny lines it was as if everyone had swelled yes oh we could just go all day what is it about this trope like what is it about having to go back to high school or having to go back home especially in your late 20s like i found 28 to be such a specific like transitional year in a lot of ways so like this yeah. resonated in, in many different ways but like what is it about what this movie is positing where you have to go and confront who you were and who you are now that makes for a good movie because again i watched romeo and michelle like three nights ago and like it does it from a whole other perspective but like people having to unpack being 28 is hard those are nice brother sister films because you're like, where have I been? And someone's like, I'm stumped. Where? <laughs> I think I have a good answer to your question, actually. A friend of mine, my friend Will Hines, who's a very, very funny comedian, he and I had known each other forever. And then he hit this point where he just had this like confidence about him that I'd never really known before. He was always like a really good guy. But he was just demonstrating this confidence that I was very impressed by. And I, I, I said, he and I were close enough. I said, where did this come from? And he said, you know, I think at a certain point I just got old enough. And I said to myself, anything about myself that I was able to change, I've done it. Like, I can't change anything else. So now I just have to accept mm. who I am and accept 
what my life is and it's giving me this freedom and I I always thought that was very profound. And then I, I had the same experience. And I, I kind of think that your late 20s, it's not just like the, oh, I'm about to turn 30 trope, which is, in my experience was not really a point of stress. But I think you sit there and you go, there's still that angst. There's still that anger. There's still that feeling of like, did you want to bust out from your hometown or you somebody was happy to live there? But, you know, you basically, when you're young, you decide that there's things you want to go do and you want to be. And I think that you're 28, 29, and at this point I'd extended up to about 32 or 33 in a lot of people's experiences, are, are your last chances of going, I can feel that I'm almost locked into who I am. I'm almost locked mm-hmm. into who I am. I think this movie really kind of hits that in the gut mm. of like, is this who I am? Like, is this who I wound up as? And then he's obviously yeah. facing that as like, am I someone who sits here and rationalizes that I murder people and seemingly have no friends in my life? Like the closest friend I have is a secretary who fears me and a shrink who hates me. Like, <laughs> is this who I wound up as? And I, I, obviously the reunion is a little bit of a cliche thing to bounce that off of, but... I really feel strongly that that comes through. You hit a point where you just go, I've made all these decisions and they led me here? Yeah, yeah. Really? Do I have time to change? (laughs) I don't know if I have much time left to change this. Oh, man. I feel that a lot. And I definitely had that exact kind of panic at 28 and kind of veered off and expanded my world dramatically and, and kind of have had... Yeah, because the past few years have been a ride. And the concept of you becoming what you hate and not noticing it until someone points it out also feels very relevant to that point in time. I think there's a lot of truth to that. In real life, I I also think it's an age where you still are at a point where a lot of comparing your success or lack thereof to other people's success or lack thereof. And you see other people nailing things down I know in comedy, that was an age I was seeing a lot of friends of mine start to get success. I wasn't getting it. You know, you start to see people from your hometown have kids and get mortgages then. And you're going, what am I, what am I doing? And you're, and you, and you're still too tunnel visioned on your own life there where you're not going, you're not realizing, oh, they're all having that conversation too. Did I just lock myself into a mortgage forever? You know, like. Yeah. But you're, you're, it's at that age where I think you're really seeing people pulling away in different directions. And uh, it's it's a lot of questions. It's a lot of questions. Well, and the reunion is like a Christmas carol. Like it's like confronting the ghosts of the past and the present and the future all in one place. Oh, like you kind of like show up and wow. everyone is there in one way or another as something for you to judge yourself against it's a shooting gallery you know like you go there like everyone is someone you've either surpassed or failed by if you're only looking at it from that perspective which like many of us are because it's very tempting to only look at it from that perspective so and for many at like 28 it's the even though you're kind of noticing this stuff subconsciously or you're noticing friends and peers make it in one way or another to go back and see your friends from high school and then have that opportunity to gauge yourself against. It's the first time in 10 years you've had to do that, so it's even more shocking. I'm saying this is someone who's who's mm-hmm. the class president of my class and planning my 20-year reunion right now. So like <laughs> so I'm, it's especially on my mind. But I thought I thought a lot about this while while watching this as I was like, oh, this is like this is an existential test in a in a gigantic way. Mm. 
it's one of the great sequences and it's so grounded and real, but it's also like a dream sequence in a lot of ways. I love that you just compared it to Christmas Carol and there's that scene mm. that I, there's two scenes in this movie where nothing is said and you walk away getting punched in the face with the message of it. And one of them is in this scene where he meets his friend who has the baby and he lifts up the baby mm. and the lights get mm-hmm. real weird you know, and they play it all off of like, it's the disco ball and the, and the party lighting. And then the song kicks in and he's just staring into the baby's eyes and he never says it, but you can feel him having that thing. So many people in that age range has where he picks up this baby and he goes, Oh, I've been telling myself that I never wanted kids. And now I'm holding a kid and it's my friend who has the kid. And I can't believe how beautiful it is. And maybe, maybe I want a kid. Maybe I've been lying to myself I might want a kid. You see him think it all. That is the power of those transition times. You're like, maybe I can change everything all at once. Who cares, right? Let's do it. Let's stop being a hitman. Let's have a baby. Windows closing. That's how I got married the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta get your yayas out. The other scene I was referencing to is, um, I actually would say this scene is so well done. And and I'll say this too. I've I've never been great at it, but I've like anybody in comedy. I've written a couple screenplays, even so, got paid money to do one. So that's an accomplishment. Never went anywhere. Hmm. But you know, you read all those books, and Gross Point Blank does get pointed to as one of those ones of like, if you want to learn screenplays, hmm. this is one of the ones to check out. Nice. And one of the scenes that I think, and not that I'm an expert, I didn't study film, but where I go people must point to this scene from time to time is, you know, like he goes back to his hometown, sees teachers, sees friends. And then there's that really dark scene where he goes back to his house. It's not there. Where's his mom? She's in a mental hospital. She's cracked up. He didn't even know. Mm -hmm. And they're touching base, all these iconic relationships, right? Friends, teachers, now the mom. And they only mention the dad in like a very throwaway sentence that says nothing about it, nothing about it. He says something to his mom or something in regards to the dad, but no exploration of the father figure, which for a guy who's a hitman, this like ultra masculine thing, you'd think, okay, there's daddy issues here. They even have a joke about it, right? Where Dan Aykroyd in the scene where Dan Aykroyd also drops the gem of, where are you right now? Budapest. Oh yeah. I see you right there on the bridge of the Danube as he pulls up and he says something about if you need a father figure, I'll spank you. Oh my God, Dan. (laughs) It's the best. They've danced around the idea of him, of dad stuff, never mention it. And then there is a scene where this very contemplative Joe Strummer song plays and nothing leads up to it. And he walks into a graveyard with a bottle of whiskey, stands at a grave that has his dad's name on it, turns the whiskey upside down, dumps it all out, drops the bottle, walks away. They never mention it again. Yeah. And I would argue that I can't think of too many scenes I've seen in any, you know, in television or film that tell you everything you need to know about someone's relationship without a word. You just go, oh, I just learned so much. This kid, this kid is all screwed up in the head. And here's what we know. His mom went insane. Mm-hmm. And now we just learned that his dad was a brutal alcoholic. And this is about, he doesn't even have a good word to say. 
He doesn't even have a word. He mm-hmm. just dumps the whiskey and walks away. Was that hateful? Was that celebratory? You don't even know, but you go, oh, I just got a real glimpse of their relationship. And it's it's a one-person scene. And you got to hope that this isn't one of those creep show situations where his dad is going to come back as a zombie now. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sequel. But I feel like this is a good time maybe to get into the question of like, who is John Cusack and what is this movie in his career? Because I feel like those scenes partly work and he was who he was in the 90s. And I say this as someone who had like truly my first real like giant celebrity crush on him when I watched High Fidelity on a plane when I was 12, which in retrospect, I'm like, who let that 12 year old watch High Fidelity? Shouldn't I have been watching a My Little Pony thing? (laughs) Um, But here we are. (laughs) and i feel like those scenes work partly because he has such an expressive face i I, i'm reminded of what julie said in our pretty in pink episode about how andrew mccarthy is so dreamy uh in that movie because he gives such a perfect look of like you know i have such feelings for you and my stomach is full of battery acid in a good way when i look at you like he does that face so well (laughs) And I feel like uh, John Cusack went to the Andrew McCarthy face acting school, partly, is what's going on. And then my other thoughts on why he is who he is, I tried to make a little list today, is like, good actor, lefty, and has that kind of gravelly voice sometimes. But what do you, Sarah, what do you think he represents? Like, John Cusack is John Cusack in a lot of, like, before, from High Fidelity back, High fidelity back 15 years, he is he represented a thing. Pre-9-11 John Cusack was Mr. Romantic Comedy, but he was like a Gen Xer. He wasn't Tom Hanks, and he wasn't like a hot, you know, an angry prince who's going to lie to you. He was like Mr. Walk in the Rain, talk to you about my feelings, like earnestness. And he was all, and he played dudes in various ways, like he was part of kind of 90s masculinity and he did other kinds of projects but i don't know like he he like made romantic comedies cohere around him i would say like he made things that were not that great seem better than they were often because joan was also there and i feel like this movie (laughs) is so special because it's him doing that but in this movie that is very philosophical like feels extremely like not just well written but in a way that feels honed like respectful of the writing and it's like it is a john cusack movie the way there's like 10 other ones um of varying degrees of great to good to okayness and just it's got the rest of life in it also does that make sense yeah I love him. I love him so much because there's something about a level of like mixed confidence and total lack of confidence in everything I can mm. remember him in and like sticking out to me and that like resonating as being like a teenage boy and just being like, yeah, this guy seems to be very confident about one thing and not very confident about his immediate surroundings and what he's up against in one way or another, like character wise, like that's the character he seems to play a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I always had that fun, like when he was a romantic interest, because I was like, oh, there's there's hope for me uh. <laughs> <laughs> as an asymmetrical guy. Yeah. Yeah. A, yeah. Asymmetrical all, all around by way of what's going on inside and outside. Like I was like, John Cusack can make it. We, we've got one for us. <laughs> Chris, what, what stood out to you about, about John Cusack? I think there's a bunch of things. Um, 
Because he historically is one of my favorites. We should also mention, you also hear rumors that he's like a womanizer. And stuff. So I want, before I like put him on too much of a pedestal, like, yeah, I'm aware. Sure. Yeah. I'm aware that yeah. everybody hears. I don't, who knows how true they are. I don't know. But you hear it. So. Everyone's probably terrible. <laughs> First of all, I would say, you know, back in the 80s, Oh, there's all these sort of like wackadoo comedies, right? And he's got one crazy summer and there's stuff like that. And they're like these like fun eighties movies that were like the cliche and then say anything comes along and it's just to cut above those, right? Like this is Cameron Crowe. Mm. This is like heartfelt and right away there's a few things. So I mentioned before, like he's got a clash t-shirt on, but you find out in real life, like he talks a lot about the clash and, he likes kickboxing himself for real, and he does help get his friends in on these movies. So I think he seems like a very likable person in real life. And those elements show up on screen, which also sort of presupposes, like, he might also be the guy who really would hold up the boombox on your lawn. Like, he might mm. be that romantic, you know? Like, the the way he lets you see his real life on the screen does also sort of blur the line where you go, he might be this sweet, thoughtful a uh, guy especially like he's not a new york or la guy he's so famously a chicago guy like he's the one who likes the clash he doesn't he's a guy who doesn't associate himself with the coasts like he seems kind of cool and there is for a guy who's a mainstream actor there's like a little bit of counterculture he's probably the biggest name from the 80s mm. That is so clearly mainstream who you still feel a little bit underground liking him as your favorite. And I think another aspect mm. of him that has made him sort of like this cult figure is simply put, he does not age. Yeah. <laughs> so he remains whoever you were the first time you saw him. If it was High Fidelity, he's still the guy from High Fidelity. He doesn't look much older, even compared to Say Anything, which I think was 86. He doesn't look that much older. There's three phases of him. There's there's him in Sixteen Candles. There's him in One Crazy Summer, and then there's every mm -hmm. other John Cusack movie where he looks within the same five years. Like those are, he was a little boy, and then he was a man. <laughs> Bill's thirty-two. He looks thirty-two now. He looked thirty-two five years ago, and he'll look thirty-two in ten years. I hate men. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm certainly not prescribing to that, so I'm not. I'm not one of those men. I, I looked young forever and then looked so old overnight. One of the other themes where this is like a sneaky sequel to um, Say Anything is where Say Anything was so much about you know, his relationship with his girlfriend and his relationship with his girlfriend being foiled by bullshit with her dad and her dad being kind of like a corporate criminal. Mm -hmm. In this movie, the dad is a corporate criminal. He's an embezzler. And he's John Mahoney. Oh, yeah, he's a... <laughs> I think he's a corporate criminal that John Cusack is tasked with saving, which is such a funny fantasy for, yeah. like, anyone who's been in a relationship with a woman and the dad is somehow judgmentally involved. And, like, if you could get in and then have the upper yeah. hand of saving him somehow, what a magical situation that would be. I didn't have time to do this, but I was thinking of preparing a game where I do like two real John Cusack movie titles and a made up title and you have to pick which one is fake. Because I think it could be really hard because he's in a lot of movies that just no one seems to be seeing. I think that just a lot of a lot of strange stuff. I have no idea what happened, but perhaps multiple people got tired of things, but maybe he got tired of being himself after a while. 
That's a really interesting question is when was that turn? That movie where he was existed only in the mind of a serial killer. <laughs> Must love dogs also. Yeah, American Sweethearts. I think that was the big one. I think Serendipity. I was just going to say, I remember he was distinctly himself in, as late as Serendipity. I can vouch for that. <laughs> I saw it in the theater. And Must Love Dogs marks 20 years in romantic comedies. And I feel like if I had been in romantic comedies for 20 years, I would be like, you know what? I want to be in strange samurai movies that no one watches now. <laughs> did, did he, he also played Brian Wilson, right? Oh, yeah, that was great. He was great in that. Yeah. Movie. So great that you don't even care that he looks nothing like Paul Dano and you're like, this is the same guy. Whatever. It's, it's like that Bob Dylan thing. But it, it almost feels like the full transformation, right? Like he went from playing a yeah. guy who's always kind of like John Cusack, or at least you feel that way, to actually playing another human being who we know who that guy is. Yeah. Which I think kind of maybe he wanted to do. So that's exciting. Chris, did you see this movie when it came out? And, and if you did, what was that like for you? Because this movie didn't exist in this form before it came it came to us. I saw it in the theater, actually, uh, randomly with some friends. I'm just firmly of an age where there were a lot of us who really loved Say Anything. Like, that was... I had the I had the boombox mm. poster on my wall freshman year of college and a lot of a lot of people in my generation did. It hadn't come out so long ago and mm. I graduated high school in 98 and there was there was a lot of extreme nostalgia for 80s movies by then. So he had really come back to life I think mm. for a lot of us. Uh, so I saw it in the theater and I I really really liked it. And then, again, being a freshman in college in 98, I eventually got the VHS tape. And anyone my age will tell you, like, when you were a college kid in a pre-streaming era, like, you might have, like, access to maybe six V8. Like, not everybody had a, v a VCR on your floor mm -hmm. and not everybody owned a lot of movies and you have room for them. So I must have watched Gross Point Blank, Pulp Fiction, and Friday Yes. <laughs> I mean, probably 40 times each during my first year of yeah. college in the dorms, because it would just be you'd throw something on and have it in the background, and then other kids would stop by, and you'd mm -hmm. be drinking, and all of a sudden be like, you want to just like, you know, or people would come back high. Be like, Should we just throw on 20 minutes of Friday? Mm -hmm. And everybody would be like, yes. Or like, <laughs> Should we just fast forward to that scene in Gross Point Blank where he shows up at the radio station and she just destroys him? You guys want to just watch Mini Driver destroy him and like Aww. just watch it over and over again, you know? I, I constantly like want to describe pre-internet time on the show on a regular basis to just be like, no, 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 yeah. this was really the way. And especially with movies, though, it really is different, right? Like you went to Blockbuster and you drove there and you mm -hmm. walked the aisles because, you know, if you picked something that wasn't if you pick something you didn't like, it's not like you could just call up something else. Like there was a little bit of a pressure in the pre-internet to be like, I better make mm -hmm. sure this is something recommended to me or that it has an actor I already liked because you can't just watch the first 15 minutes and bail. Like you spent money on it and you drove 20 <laughs> minutes to the video store to get it. So it was a little bit more of a, it's, I'm not like being a Luddite or trying to be like back in my day. It's just, no, it was kind of cool. It was cool. And cause like it, the choice mattered. Yeah. And it meant when you found something you really loved, you hung on to it because if you were like, I could take a chance on something that I heard was okay, 
or do I just want to like throw in this thing that I know I love, even though I've already seen it? Like very often that the rewatching things, I think was a little bit more of a safe bet. And I would have to imagine a little bit more of a thing that happened more often than it does now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and my mom was born in 1948. Mine too. What that makes me think of is that as a kid, I remember finding out that when my mom was a kid in the 50s, you know, you would see a movie that would play on TV or it would be in a theater, and then you would just maybe never see it again for the rest of your life, as far as you knew. You would just be like, well, that was great, and I hope I remember it, because there's no video. I found it amazing as a kid who was so dependent on rewatching stuff that, like, people didn't even do that before the early 80s. Like, I remain very shaped by that as a viewer. Like, I've watched Ocean's Eleven about 25 times this year because I know it makes me happy. <laughs> I was going to say a companion thought, which is the other experience that it's, it's actually very good because people work hard on movies and no one wants them to be seen this way. Yeah. But moving forward, like, no one needs to have the experience again where you're flipping through the channels and you go, oh, I've always heard this movie was good. I'm going to watch it even though I missed the first 35 entire minutes. Like, mm. Oh my God. I so distinctly remember as a kid realizing three o'clock high, I, I, I turned on, it was either channel nine or 11 in New Jersey. I was like, Oh my God, three o'clock high. This is one of those movies you always hear about and never see. And it was totally valid to be like, yeah, like I've seen three o'clock high, but that means I watched the last 45 minutes of it one day and then managed to see the next 35 minutes. Another, or like I saw the last 40 minutes, realized it was good. So then I went and rented it and watched the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Is there ever going to be a thing again where like Shawshank Redemption and Groundhog Day in particular, <laughs> there's a certain generation of people who have seen that movie. Uh, they've seen oh, those yeah. movies a hundred times because they were on cable on a loop, you know, like you couldn't escape them. Mm -hmm. I wonder how that's going to affect things. Now in TikTok, it's like, it's literally like you just look at at least 50 to 75 minute long videos that you'll also never see again because like they're ethereal, like they kind of like go off into the distance. And so like, that's going to be a whole. Yeah, it's almost like we're back. Yeah. <laughs> You're <laughs> totally like, who is that? What was she doing? It's gone now. I can't find it. It's so fascinating. Sarah, a huge piece of what you love about this movie is Joan Cusack. Can you tell me about what is appealing yes. to you about about Joan, both in this and overall? Well, I was also thinking, because we've been talking about Afflecks lately, Joan Cusack is, I think, the Casey Affleck of the family in a way, <laughs> except for, you know, there's a, a quite a lack of troubling allegations against Joan Cusack, so <laughs> putting that aside. But she's the Cusack that still has an accent. <laughs> yeah, I just love her. I just think, like, I grew up, I mean, speaking of movies that were on cable a lot, I think In and Out used to also be on mm. quite a bit, and so I grew up watching her in that, and, like, also in Working Girl, for which she was nominated for an Oscar, quite rightly. She is a woman who has been able to be funny and to be funny in a way that feels very particularly based on kind of who she is and what she brings to the table. And she just has this like, yeah, she's a Midwestern broad. I love her. <laughs> I really can't put it more articulately than that. I, don't, I mean, Alex, how do you feel about Joan Cusack? 
anytime she's around, it's a blast. Like, anytime Joan Cusack is on screen, it's fantastic. Like, even down to which of the Hughes movies is she in where she has the neck brace? Which one is that? 16 Candles. Yeah, and 16, I mean, God, just like anytime she's on screen, she can be doing nothing and she's absolutely hilarious. And she's seemingly very lovely like i want to hear her talk nonstop. i love their relationship in this movie um in a great way i love that they don't address that they are siblings like obviously they're obviously i know that that's not in this movie but like it's so funny to have mm-hmm. them play opposite each other because these two people are very obviously each other's siblings. He just hired her because he was like, I have a warm feeling towards you and I haven't figured out that it's because you look like me. <laughs> I also love her in toys so much. Yeah, there's so many. I, I, I love Joan Cusack in a, in a huge way and anytime she's around, it's going to be great. I want to echo everything you guys just said. I also think that in the John Cusack movies, she's often given a chance to just take the ball and run with it in a way that's surprising. Like she gets mm. a dunk in a lot of the movies. Like, <laughs> like say anything, she's playing like his sister who's the single mom and they have that great scene oh, yeah. where she's like all stressed out and he's like, just choose to be in a better mood. She's like, go oh, like, that's easy. And it's like, it's just, you get to see like, oh, she's so good. And then in Gross Point Blank, she plays such a ridiculous character. And then they give her that movie where she's on the phone, I think, with like the munitions supplier. <laughs> and they've messed up the contract and she just starts lacing in. And you go, she went from like this dopey, sweet, goofball comic relief in an already funny movie to all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's how she's this guy's right hand person. Mm-hmm. She just tore someone like eight new assholes. And they just give her that scene to just be like, yep, yeah, I'm John. Like, I'm Joan Cusack, drop the mic, I'm out, you know? Like, <laughs> And then we also have to mention with this character, him calling her Sergeant Pepper for wearing that shirt is yeah. incredibly funny. <laughs> I'm left sitting here wondering, did, was that written into the script as a wardrobe choice and a written joke, or were they on set and someone realized she looks like she's wearing something off the cover of Sergeant Pepper? I don't think I'll ever know. That's a great question. Yeah, Someone has to I know. I feel like it could go either way. This movie's so perfectly cast, like, in every in every single way, in that way, and, like, Alan Arkin being oh, a terrified, being a terrified therapist. <laughs> forget about it. He didn't take the, the class that Dr. Malfi took, apparently. Uh-huh. Well, that's what I love about the dynamic, is he's just, like, openly terrified of a client. And I love, like, that's the thing that I love about this movie so much, is, like, there there are very hilarious consequences to the dynamic with everyone's relationship to John Cusack between, you know, his therapist acknowledging it and being terrified of it to this whole joke that's played throughout the movie where he just kind of plainly describes almost in jest what he is and what he does. And since it just like mm-hmm. no one is able to believe it because it obviously has to be a joke or it just sounds like a job in corporate America. Like, right. I love everyone's relationship to what John Cusack is and how much, you know, he's like a Rorschach test to everybody. And it's really it's fantastic. Mm. That exact thing they keep returning to leads to another one of the best laugh lines in the movie, which is him in the car with Jeremy Piven. Ten years, ten years. And then Cusack going, I freaked out. I joined the military, got into the assassin's game, went into business for myself. I'm a professional assassin. Lays it out twice. Piven can't believe it. And then just pauses and goes, you get dental with that? I believe his <laughs> 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 laugh out loud. Laugh out loud. 
I feel like this is a movie that like could not be made in a post-Columbine world because like there's a world in which like someone gets murdered in a high school and you're like, oh, that was an adult who got murdered by another adult at a reunion, not during class time. So that's fine in a sense. <laughs> like it's it's different. And now I just feel like the like romantic comedy shootout movie, like the the kibosh has been really put on it by all the the actual shootouts and the fact that like you kind of look at it and you're like and it and it's stressful now, which it wasn't before as a premise. Like I feel like previously these movies felt or were meant to feel like they took place in this kind of in a reality so heightened that it therefore felt magical realist almost in a sense. Yeah, that is a sad truth, right? That when they made this movie, it was I, was it two years later that it's like, oh, you could no longer do a thing. Like, imagine doing a thing where somebody goes back to their high school and shoots off a bunch of guns and kills people. Like, <laughs> two years later, this movie cannot be made. <laughs> two years, the April ninety nine. No, not getting made. Like, a, it's a movie that I find admirable because it's so earnest in a way, and I feel like it it has that. I mean, this is another way it feels like a spiritual sequel to say anything, if not a literal one, where the idea is like, well, you know, working for corporate America kind of turns you into a murderer anyway by degrees. So this is a commentary on how you can be a coked up real estate agent or you can be we have to. Oh, my God. We have to talk about. I don't even know what to call him. The subdivision rent-a-cop guy. That's an amazing uh, scene. Amazing scene. He wrote the movie, right? Isn't that I the think case? He's one of the guys. Yeah. Oh, did he? Yeah, I think he's. The, I think the guy, the guy who played him is the guy who wrote the movie. Um, terrible at names, as you know. Well, I mean, this is this another scene where we get <laughs> Lloyd slash Martin tacitly admitting what he does, and he's talking to this guy who is like a private cop for a wealthy neighborhood in a suburb of Detroit and who apparently initially pulled over because he saw our main character, John Cusack, walking by looking suspicious. And so they get to talking and he's like, are you authorized to use deadly force? And he's like, oh yeah, like, of course. I don't know. I guess I find it interesting that this movie is feels very ahead of its time in terms of this idea of like, wow, maybe like like successfully working white men in America are kind of complicit with murder to some extent. And that's a concern, but did it in a way that you can't do any longer by being like this whole having to kill someone in a school thing. This doesn't hit close to home. This is just weird. It's a little on the nose in some ways. And it's also not like it's, it never addresses the text fully where you also have that conversation between Hank Azaria. And I don't know what the other actor's name is. And they're talking about when it's, considered okay and not okay to kill somebody in a government position like you basically have all mm -hmm. of these people rationalizing to themselves that their approach to murder is fine like that's an ongoing gag in mm -hmm. this movie they have the best approach to murder theirs is the one that's okay <laughs> right exactly and, and right down to to lloyd slash martin explaining to mini driver um exactly this thing like governments do this all the time states do this all the time it's considered a different thing but then he kind of has to <laughs> embrace you know again by going to this reunion and seeing who he is through the eyes of the people around him that he is not necessarily better because of all of his rationalization for, for as many times as I've seen this movie, I've never really boiled it down to that of like, oh, there is one person on earth whose opinion this guy cares about. And it's his high school sweetheart. Hmm. And he has to now look her in the eye and see that she's 
completely disturbed by what he's turned into. That's kind of the whole movie boiled down, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And see her horror. Yeah. Which, to be fair, she did walk in in a moment when things looked really bad. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I had, I had an, okay, I had this opportunity, I can't believe, I can't believe this has never come up, but, like, I pined for this girl in high school in just, like, a gigantic way, and she was a couple years older than me and just was in love with her. And then, like, five or six years passed, and I ended up back home for, like, a couple of months, and I ended up having this opportunity to go on a date with her, because she was back home for the summer or something, and it was going to be amazing. And I ended up going out for drinks first with these like basically like these old these old academics from the area who like we've like talked about you know continental philosophy and stuff like really conceited dumb bullshit but i drank too much i drank too much she came to pick me up and i went out and she saw that i was too drunk to go on the date and it did not happen like i never i didn't end up going Uh. on the date and i saw myself through her eyes like in the way that cusack sees himself through driver's eyes and i was like oh shit things are bad and i let them be bad for another five years but that was the first time that's, that's <laughs> transformative right <laughs> totally i was like i should get around to doing something about this she looked i had an opportunity and she looked real upset that came out right to me like when i watched driver run away from him because i was like oh no he's been seen <laughs> wow that's an intense story right yeah i haven't seen her sense no it's okay i think we have other things going on everything's fine (laughs) but this is why you don't go to the reunion right you see yourself through many driver's eyes it's why 20 is the first one i feel comfortable with i haven't gone to any of the other ones but 20 years i haven't i've had enough time to Mm. figure some shit out i think that that's why like 28 is so significant in this context is like you Go through your life for at least those first 10 years, especially if you leave home and you're just, you get to judge everything and sometimes messily rationalize everything to yourself without any context that you grew up with. And then when you're faced with the context of what you grew up with, you have to actually, you know, answer to your childhood self in one way or another. And that's terrifying. Like, I don't want to have to rationalize my existence to my 17-year-old self. That kid's a dick, man. (laughs) If you boil down everything that is concerning about capitalism, I think you could probably say that murder for hire and trying to justify it in any way mm-hmm. is probably an example of how capitalism is just a totally corrupting force, right? Like mm. you can justify anything mm. for money. As long as you're getting money for it, there's a way to justify anything, even killing people. Um, so in that sense, I think too, the last handful of years, I think there's been growing up, like listening to the music I did and stuff. There's, I've, uh, there's always been a dialogue about capitalism as like a very negative force, but I think it's become a, a very mainstream conversation in the past handful of years, yeah. especially with like mm-hmm. AOC getting elected. I think it's kicked and Bernie Sanders and that as a movement. It's like, I wonder how this movie would play to someone who had never seen it today, who grew up with those ideas of, you know, just, hey, guys, money is not everything. Yeah. And this con- this American attitude that that the only way to measure worth is this scramble to just suck up as much money as you can, consequences be damned. In that way, I think this movie 
does sort of say like, hey, this guy literally, there's a scene where he leaves Joan Cusack's character with a brick of money as a severance package. Like all he ever did was make money. But when he had to look someone in the eye who didn't care about that and just see her full of like shock and hurt. And in some ways, I think it is very much a thought about it makes sense that it makes sense that John Cusack is such a Joe Strummer fan and that that bleeds through so heavily. And I think that really applies today. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and not just the world has made that point, but like, quote, prestige TV until the end of Breaking Bad right. ended up making this point. That's really like, smart. This was the point that these things made. Mm-hmm. Like the Sopranos to Breaking Bad just made this point over and over and over in one way or another to the point where it's just part of our pop culture. Mm-hmm. Into Like being a family man will make you evil via capitalism, essentially. So that and just like the various concessions you have to make until you're no longer making concessions, you're just out operating like a killer robot. Like that's that's a big thing that happened a lot, mm-hmm. a lot in that media. And then to Chris's point earlier about what movies were available to who and like, you know, what were considered edgy movies in the 90s in particular and just like what was out on VHS, mm-hmm. what you had access to. Like this was the nuanced conversation we were having about that. Like when I was in... When I was in high school, like, in my class, I was, like, the one kid who was talking about, like, sweatshops. And I'm sure, like, (laughs) you know, with, like, TikTok and the internet, you know, there'd be, like, at least a third of kids would have, like, a pet pet issue or something along those lines. So, like, we were just, like, talking just, like, broadly about issues, like, in a blunt way in the 90s. And just so much more nuance has happened has happened since then because like the formats and the the avenues for those conversations have just broadened so much i find up bringing tony soprano up really interesting too because soprano started in 99 Mm. this came out in 97 and in a lot of ways it's like uh it is the same theme but almost inverted right where like sopranos is tony soprano swearing up and down i'm a family man and to the FBI, that's just leave me alone. I'm just a family man. And then even within his private life, I'm doing this all for my family. And then it just becomes clear and clear. Like, you don't, you don't really give too much of a shit about even your, like, this is all about money. This is all about money. You know, the amount of people you killed by the end are people who are actually, you know, actual people in your family, destroyed your family for money. Whereas he's, his whole thing is hiding who he is. Whereas Martin Blank is just... This is the movie about the point where the assassin finally just started telling people, I kill for money. Like, I kill for money. Like, it's about putting it on the table, but a really similar, I didn't ever, I never thought about that, of just an extremely similar message, but almost inverted from the one you usually see in entertainment. Usually it's the evil person hiding it. This one's a guy mm-hmm. just telling everybody and they just happen to not believe it. He's like, I got really evil and I don't know what to do about it. It's, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it's about money for tony soprano but it's also about like maintaining some connection to his youth and like that's so much what this movie's about and like Mm. his therapist in this movie is basic is based on becker who wrote who wrote denial of death and i don't know if that's for real but like based on him he's like i found you because of this book and the guy's book sounds almost exactly like denial of death which is about you know people trying to hold on to their youth because they're scared of dying in one way or another the -hmm. things that we'll do for money and to like talk ourselves out of the fact that like death is inevitably coming for us leads to a lot of zany situations says the 90s Well, and also if you have close calls with Dan Aykroyd, like at a certain <laughs> point, like I think 28 is also the time when you start being like, you know what? 
How many close calls with Dan Aykroyd am I really going to survive, honestly? <laughs> Should I join the union? <laughs> we also haven't even mentioned yet the opening scene of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the one that I've seen mentioned a lot in some of the screenwriting guides, which the whole thing where he's like training his scope on the guy on the bike and she's reading the invitation to the reunion and then he kills mm-hmm. the guy and you realize, oh, this is serious. And then she just calmly continues reading it. You go, you go oh, that is a watchable, funny, action-packed open scene that also tells you literally every piece of information about what this movie's about to be. Like, it's really, really good. It's just a really well-written and well-delivered opener. Did it suffer? Like, I don't I don't know much about the release, although I remember Blister in the Sun being re-released. So, like, I assume that, like, I assume that, like, <laughs> one-third of the audience went for comedy, one-third went for an action movie, and one-third went because Blister in the Sun played nonstop on the radio for nine months. Like... And some number of women went for John Cusack because they were like, I see John Cusack and Minnie Driver on the cover and there is going to be kissing. And they were not disappointed either. And I hope they weren't too squeamish about people being stabbed in the neck. I love how intimate they are. They like kiss and make out a lot. Like it actually, mm-hmm. I love that they connect in that way. He's not like, they're both horny for each other. And I love that for them. <laughs> I remember right. It was a movie that, kind of flew under the radar people weren't totally sure what to make of it and it was one of those movies where it was kind of a sad thing to witness where the soundtrack sort of caught more buzz than the movie itself i do remember that i feel like even people who didn't see gross point blank like oh man that soundtrack crushing it (laughs) if you're a filmmaker and you put that much thought and time and work into a movie and then people are like oh you got the specials on your soundtrack that's rad and that's their only reaction that has to be (laughs) such a bummer that's gonna be such a bummer so we have a we have a question that's a holdover from our previous show where we were typically asked like we know who the dad is in this movie but who do we consider to be the daddy? So wow. do we? who is the dad in this movie? The dad, oh, the dad's Minnie Driver's dad, who John Cusack ultimately has to save. And his dad, who was in, yes. in the grave. And John Cusack's dad in his grave with whiskey on him. Daddy is totally up for interpretation, and you bring your own baggage to what you assign that to be. So we know who the dad is. Who is the daddy in this movie? Sarah, do you want to do you want to kick off? Yes. I mean, to me, it is like obviously Dan Aykroyd because he literally refers to spanking him. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? This thing where he's like trying to get you to join his union and he's like ratting on you. And Dan Aykroyd's interesting from a Midwestern perspective. Like he's definitely a man of the Great Lakes and he's like obsessed with playing characters from Chicago or at least was for a while. And that's really interesting. Like, I grew up watching the Blues Brothers all the time because that was a movie that we had on tape. And I feel like I am very familiar with, like, 70s, 80s Dan Aykroyd and 90s Dan Aykroyd is just, like, a very confusing phenomenon to me. I don't understand his energy at all. And sometimes it's it gets a little scary based on the project. But in this, like, he's just perfect. Like, he's perfect. It's like, you're like, of course, like, a prolific international 
hitman would look and behave like Dan Aykroyd and I like I believe that I do and like he's terrifying like I think he's an underrated movie villain in this so like he's the daddy in terms of just like you're like Dan Aykroyd I'm scared of you this is a virtuoso performance like bravo Dan Dan Aykroyd (laughs) made so much sense to me when I learned that he was autistic it connects a lot of dots it connects a lot of dots yeah Mm. And also, like, a big ghost hunter. Yeah. Like, that's what makes him make sense to me, is that he's a big ghost hunter in real life. Yeah. I wouldn't say Buster, because I don't think he wants to put them in little boxes. He just wants to, like, spot them. This happened in the weird window in between Dan Aykroyd being a comedy giant and Dan Aykroyd being a ghost-obsessive salesperson of vodka in a crystal skull. Like, that's this is in that weird window yes. <laughs> Dan, what are you doing here? It's nice to see you. What, what we call the crotch of a career. My initial reaction was also Dan Aykroyd, because like you said, he talks about spanking him and says, if you need a father figure, you know, I got you. Mm. But then I, I'm thinking about it. I would I would just put out food for thought that Martin Blank, he dumps the whiskey on the grave. So what do we know? His relationship with his father was clearly stressed, distant, couldn't get attention from him. You have to imagine these are fair assumptions. In that sense, I might argue that the daddy in this movie is actually Dr. Oatman, Alan Arkin's character. Mm. That this idea of this mm. dad who, like, absolute, this, this male authority who refuses steadfastly to connect and won't pick up the phone, <laughs> and who he's just like, I just want you to do what you do. Can we please just have the relationship we're supposed to have? And he's like, No, I'm scared mm. of you, Martin. <laughs> yeah. And in some ways, he might be the dad and he has and he has boundaries too he's like i can't connect which is odd for dads but he's like i can't connect with you because i'm scared of you which is how many of us would love to have heard that from our dads like (laughs) oh my god that would have saved me 20 years of confusion (laughs) i'd be like thank you so much i'm gonna write that in my journal i kind of think martin in this case is in the sense that he is completely disheveled, thinks that he's very confident about what he's all about, kind of realizes that he's not at all confident about what he's all about and can't seem to get out of his own way and inadvertently for a short while destroys the people around him until he, you know, he has a, he's not the daddy anymore because he has a series of realizations about who and what he is. And he's going to start wearing less cool-looking outfits, probably, and have a, a job where he can't go around, you know, with, with cool guns. He's going to die in a distracted driving accident based on how he drives at the end of this movie. Well done. I mean, can you imagine if that... Can you imagine if there was a post credit scene where 40 seconds later they show that car crash into the water? <laughs> That's how it is. It's like at the beginning. What's that Albert Brooks movies movie where at the beginning he dies? I'm trying to put Defending a CD in the life. CD player. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Or there's Private Benjamin where he dies having sex. You know, take your pick. Um, Chris, you have a thing coming out. Can you talk about it quickly so we can make sure that people engage it? I do. I have a new stand-up special out now. It's called Half My Life. It's like kind of a hybrid between a stand-up special you're used to and a tour documentary that kind of, you know, shows some chaos on the road and also some thoughts about how much more of my life do I want to sit in a car in traffic trying to get to a show in Detroit and just tried to make it a little thoughtful and it's a little strange, but you can go download it on iTunes and Amazon and Vimeo and 
bunch of places and people might like it and it would greatly help my career if you took a chance on it. And Jawbreaker's involved, which I, I love. We got a great soundtrack. Yeah, Jawbreaker gave me a song and there's a bunch of good band. By making it a doc, I was also able to have a soundtrack, which is kind of a dream in a Cusackian way. That's fantastic. Mm, that's so great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This was wonderful. Oh, that was so fun. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Chris Gethard for being on the show. It was amazing. Again, check out Chris's comedy special, Half My Life. You know, again, out in on the information superhighway and on uh, where you watch things in your life. It's so hard to, like, it's so hard to point to things now because it's, like, they're everywhere. Things are just everywhere. Go watch it everywhere. <laughs> uh, thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing the show and for making the music uh just you can find carolyn's work at carolynkendrick.com follow her online follow her on instagram etc um uh, twitter wherever wherever the following happens go follow carolyn there support her music we eventually are releasing a compilation of uh songs that have been featured on the show it's like a big thing about like getting like rights permissions and all that to do this but uh i just want to let you know this is the thing that we're working on people ask about this on a regular basis so Oh, again, you can support us at Patreon. Find bonus episodes there. Patreon.com slash you are good. You can find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for the beats that appear on the show. I'm pretty sure that's it. I'm pretty sure that's everything that I have to say <laughs> for the end of an episode. All right. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Thanks for joining us.